Stubbornness can be a good quality. Let me check the time here because we are obviously with our baptism and things. We want to be sensitive uh, to the time schedule here. So we should get out about one. Um, no. But anyway, stubbornness can be a good quality that allows a person with fortitude and, and with, with determination to accomplish what they set out to do despite the obstacles. But when a person is wrong, stubbornness is not a good quality. It can be a problem. Refusal to change despite being wrong can amount to being arrogantly stubborn. A group of people gathered uh, for their first meeting of, of the arrogantly stubborn support group. And these statements were some of how they described themselves. One said, I'm not stubborn. I just prefer to call it actively refusing to be wrong. Another one says, I'm not saying I'm always right, but I'm just saying I'm never wrong. See the difference? Another one said, I'm not stubborn. I simply am too fabulous to back down. Another one uh, said, I'm not stubborn. I just, I'm just committed to my own opinions, no matter how wrong they might be. And another said, I'm not stubborn. I'm just convinced to my awesomeness, and I don't take suggestions from reality. And the more self-reflective one of the group said, stubbornness is my superpower. Unfortunately, it only works against me. You know, uh, one example from, from arrogant stubbornness was the Iraqi information minister uh, for Saddam Hussein's regime. If you might remember from the early 2000s. And uh, his name is Mohammed Saeed al-Shahaf. But we all uh, came to know him as Baghdad Bob. His unwavering and arrogant commitment to presenting a warped version of reality during the 2003 U.S.-led invasion of Iraq is, is memorable. Uh, so he was the information minister. So he would come on the television and explain to the Iraqi people what was going on outside of their world. And he was he was a he was a compelling illustration of the dangers associated with obstinate pride in the face of overwhelming evidence. As the coalition forces gained ground um, in with lightning speed, invading into Baghdad, determined to topple the regime of Saddam Hussein. And on this, uh, while with this happening, he made reports, and these are quotes from some of his reports on TV. One is his statement, there are no American infidels in Baghdad, never. Another one said, my feelings as usual, we will slaughter them all. Another one, he said, my initial assessment is that they will all die. That's pretty confident. And the last one I, I have here is, no, I'm not scared and neither should you be. You can see how his arrogant stubbornness, and of course, he probably would have been executed if he had said anything other than that, sadly. But his, you can see how that stubbornness only kept people from preparing for what they should be preparing for. And he, would lie, he even lied about the impact of the Iraqi forces. One of the quotes that he made was this, We're giving them a real lesson today. Heavy doesn't accurately describe the level of casualties we have inflicted. 
It was certainly in the opposite of that. This morning, I want to help you to see how as followers of Christ, we can be at rest rather than a resting place. Okay, and that has to do with the arrogant stubbornness that we see going on among the religious leaders, even as they have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah that has performed all of these signs before them, even as they have him walking before them, walking among them, trying to, to uh, or teaching the crowds, and, and they're, they're watching this happen. They refuse to listen. They refuse to see him for who he is. Jesus gave a, a gospel-related command just before chapter 12, at the end of chapter 11, communicating God's will. And, and this is important because at the end of our passage this morning, we'll read Jesus saying, those who do the will of my father are my brothers and sisters and my mother. What is the will of his father that he has communicated, that Matthew has placed just prior to these uh, the following experiences that, that Jesus has with these religious leaders? And it pops up in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, where he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Next, Jesus deals with Sabbath rest, if you recall. As we entered into chapter 12, the, these chapter divisions are not, you know, Matthew didn't make chapter divisions and verse divisions. They've been, they've been provided there for us to kind of have an address of where to find things in the Bible. But Matthew did put right after Jesus' statement here, experiences that Jesus has uh, in, in, and people have around him of him teaching on the Sabbath rest. And Jesus deals with the Sabbath rest right after this, this place here in Matthew's um, description of this, of talking about, come to me and I will give you rest. And you might recall the Jewish leaders accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the law and Jesus' response comes in Matthew 6, uh, Matthew 12, verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Speaking of himself, he's claiming to be greater than the current priesthood. And this leads to Matthew showing us Jesus' power by healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. When everybody, according to Jewish tradition, everybody should be resting. He, and, and he heals a man on the day of rest. He gives a man rest on, on the day that all of the religious leaders are saying, you should be resting right now. You shouldn't be healing someone. And he frees a man from demonic oppression, that oppression that made him blind and mute. All of this to show he is greater than all of their rules. He is greater than the temple. He is greater than the priesthood. And we see a theme over and over again in the New Testament that Jesus is our perfect priest. He is our perfect king. He is our perfect prophet. And so we have seen already Jesus talking about he is greater than the priesthood. 
He is greater than the temple. And that'll come up as we see today. We see more interaction with the religious leaders that again allows Jesus to claim his greatness. And he will say that he is greater than all the prophets. As he says, something greater, something better than Jonah is here. He is greater than all the kings. When he's saying someone, something better than Solomon, the king, is here. Speaking of himself. So let's get into our verses here this morning in Matthew 12. It says, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We just talked about this follows him healing a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. It follows him driving out a demon that's, that's oppressing a man and causing him to be deaf and mute. And they come back to him saying, we want to see a sign. Albert Schweitzer said this, the demand for a sign spells the end of faith. The demand for a sign, for a physical display, is the end of faith. What is faith? Faith is evidence of things unseen. If you demand to see something in order to have faith, it's not faith. It's what Albert Schweitzer how he describes it. But, but as if Jesus had, not, had nothing to authenticate what he's been telling them, the legal authorities tell Jesus they want him to show them some proof of the things that he claims are true. We, we see in verse 39, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will get, be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I don't necessarily have time this morning to go back into the story of Jonah and things like that. It's a pretty commonly understood uh, Bible story. But, but Jesus calls this generation of these religious leaders an adulterous generation. This is usually how God described Israel when they became idolatrous. And, and these religious leaders would have been pretty prideful over the fact that they weren't idolatrous. You see, you've got to understand that after God deported the, the tribe of Judah, the last remaining tribe of Israel, after he deported them to Babylon for 70 years back in 586 B.C., 580 years before Christ, they were never idolatrous after that. And they were quite prideful about that. But for Jesus to, to use that same term and say this is an adulterous generation, they were idolatrous toward over their own prideful arrogance and stubbornness of being right. Here, sin here is a prideful, stubborn self-righteousness. And Jesus informs them that the next authenticating sign that they're going to have is his resurrection from the dead. After three days in the grave, the same way that Jonah was three days in a great fish. And he says that it will be like the experience that Jonah is known for, as I said. Then he predicts that those who will testify against these, these religious leaders that are rejecting him in their time of judgment, and both of the, the, the witnesses here, interestingly, are Gentiles that will be witnessing against these Jewish religious leaders. 
So we move forward in, in verse 41 here. The men of Nineveh, recall the men of Nineveh are the ones that Jonah was sent to be a prophet to. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jewish discussions of end time events describe times when if someone were to say, well, I was too poor to follow the Messiah, that the poor will rise up and say, we weren't too poor. If someone's too, too rich to follow the Messiah, the other rich people will rise up and say, we weren't too rich. And so following that sort of discussion, he's describing here that the, that the, the people of Nineveh will, rise, will testify against those who reject Jesus. The Gentile Ninevites, the Jonah, the, the Ninevites who were a part of the Assyrian um, empire that was, that was synonymous with ugly idolatry. These Ninevites that repented at the preaching of Jonah will say, we were pagan Gentiles and we were willing to change our ways and repent when Jonah preached to us. They listened to Jonah even though he was a foreigner from a weaker nation who washed up on their shore with a crazy fish story. And they repented. They listened to Jonah even though all of this was true. In verse 42 we read, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here. And I'm sorry we're not going into who this queen of the south was. You can read about that in 2 Kings. But, but <clears throat> I, I want to rather show the relationship of these, these instances that, Jesus, that, that Matthew groups together under the leading of the Holy Spirit. But this queen of Solomon came and saw all of Solomon's wisdom and heard of his wisdom. And, and as Jesus describes, that she will rise up and ju in judgment with this evil generation that is rejecting the Jewish leaders that are, that are ignoring the authority of the Messiah standing right before him. This second witness that will testify against those who reject Jesus is the queen that came and listened to the King Solomon. And she will testify against those who reject Jesus. She'll say, I was a pagan queen who humbled myself in the presence of God-given unparalleled wisdom. She made the trip from a vast distance. It's described as from the ends of the earth. And even though Jesus is greater and wiser then this King Solomon, King of Israel, the Jewish leaders had complete access to him and his teaching. Still, they rejected him. And verse, from verses 39 through 42 here, I want you to see that we can be warned and we must warn others. Don't ignore the signs of Jesus' authority. Don't ignore the signs of Jesus' authority. The ultimate sign of Jesus' authority we have already seen, and that is his resurrection. What he told these Jewish leaders, this is the next sign you're going to see, we already have it. The resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ 
is the capstone that proves his claims, that proves his credentials, that proves that, that everything that he did and said pointed to the fact that he is our saving Lord, that he is the Messiah. Jesus is greater. He is more significant than Jonah and thus, thus greater than the prophets. He is greater than the king of Israel. And as we see in different places, Matthew is describing Jesus as our perfect priest, more significant than the temple, our perfect prophet, our perfect king. And the resurrection would come and go, and most of these Jewish leaders ignored the most significant sign of Jesus' authority as king. And the final result of this generation's rejection of Jesus was the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And their judgment still remains when others who didn't have the scripture to testify will stand in judgment over them due to this generation's unrepentance, having the Messiah walk among them. You know, imagine an employee at a company and the new owner walks in. And the new owner walks in and greets the secretary. new owner walks in and, and, and greets the manager and, and, and uh, the employee's supervisor. And he walks up to the employee and he says, Hi, I'm the new owner around here. I want to see what you're, what you're working on here. And the employee looks at him and says, I don't know you from Adam. I, I don't care who you say you are. You're not my boss. The new owner's looking at him he's like, I'm going to give you one more chance here. This is my name. I'm the new owner around here. The employee refuses. He's just arrogant and stubborn about it. So the last thing the owner says is, you know what? When you show up tomorrow and you can't get in this building, then you'll know. Goes home. He's like, whatever. Employee shows up the next morning. Sees a big banner under new ownership. He's like, uh, this isn't good. Goes to the door, swipes his badge doesn't work. That's similar to what we're looking at here. We live on this side of the resurrection of Christ. He has shown us his ultimate sign of his authority over life and sin and death by rising from the grave. He's also shown us the power that we have available to live a new life. As I referenced in, in Dalton's baptism, Romans 6, 4 through 6 tells us this. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The gospel tells us that as Christ died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, in receiving Christ as our Savior, it is, is, it is as if we died with him. And as Christ rose from the dead to the glory of God the Father, we have the opportunity to live as a new person in Christ. And walk in a newness of life. As Galatians 2.20 tells us, I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. 
But Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me, who loved me and gave himself up for me. As believers, we should be claiming the new life that God calls us to. And the sign of our new life is the resurrection of Christ. We must allow him to exercise his authority to direct our lives. And along with ignoring the signs of Jesus' authority, he also warns people, don't be the enemy's resting place. Okay? So, so Jesus uh, or, or uh, Matthew throws this parable. We don't really know if this is exactly what Jesus went on to talk about. But we know that Matthew, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, places this, this story, this parable here, after Jesus' warning to these religious leaders. He says, when, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places. Waterless places is the desert. It's, it's where it was understood that unclean spirits that did not have a place to reside would, would inhabit Unclean spirits being demons, fallen angels. It says they, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Now, now, what is this unclean spirit? It's an unclean spirit that has gone out of a person. What has Jesus just recently done here in chapter 12? He's, he's cast out. He, he's driven out of a spirit that was oppressing a man and causing him to be mute and blind. And what has Jesus just been talking about? The warnings that, that the, the nation of Israel and specifically the religious leaders have been, have been given. And, and they're still seeking a sign. So, okay, getting back to the verses. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to the house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and in the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. Think about Israel's history. Think about people that you know. Think about your own life. When the Lord uh, took Israel out of adultery, out of, out of that adultery to him as, as, their, as he was to be their husband, he was to be the one that provided for them, and they would dive into idolatry. You can read about this. You can see it in the book of Judges. It seems like every time that they came out of it and when they went back into it, it was like they were into it worse than they were ever before. Isn't that how sin works in our own lives? And Jesus is warning these religious leaders and, and Israel, look, I am delivering you. I am sharing with you the truth. You're going to end up worse than you were be than before I came here unless you allow me to fill you. There's an interesting use of the word rest here. As, as I've read in, at the end of chapter 11, Jesus offers his hearers rest. And in this parable, Jesus teaches and describes the castaway evil spirit looking for rest. A place to rest. It can, it can find rest on those who are not resting 
in Jesus. That's why I say don't be the enemy's resting place. Jesus is describing the danger that the Jews were in who heard him, watched him, even experienced his powerful ministry. And he explained the evil spirit's oppression and possession of a person being like a squatter. And the warning for those who were being delivered by Jesus was that they needed to fill themselves with him. And if they didn't, the squatter will come back with force and it will be even harder to free them from it again. I'm mean, thinking about like if you have a family cabin and you only go up there once a summer, right? And you get there one, one summer and, and you walk in and you're like, somebody's living here. And, and you go back, you know, this is like Goldilocks, right? You go back and you find this this this, this uh uh, woodsman just like sleeping in one of the beds and you're like, get out. This, is, this, is, this place doesn't belong to you. This isn't your home. And you drive that person out and you're like, okay, you're getting things back in order. You're sweeping things. You're, you're getting it all clean. And you're there for that week and you leave. What do you think is going to happen? He's just going to come back. You know, you're going to go away, away for another 51 weeks. And you're going to come back, and you're going to find him there, and maybe, you know, don't think this isn't a time, you know, this is like in the Old West, you say. You know, maybe he's going to get wise, and he's like, all I need to do is I need to get a couple buddies here, so it's not just one against one. And this guy's not going to be able to drive me out of his cabin again. Now, now take the whole idea of deadbolts and locks and alarm systems out of the, out of the uh, equation here. If you don't put somebody there that's going to be able to keep him from coming back, he's just going to come back again. And Jesus is saying to this, these people, and he's saying to us that, that have not filled our lives with Christ. Think about the, the man that he, he freed from, from the demon that was causing him to be blind and mute. And these religious leaders, he's saying, if you don't fill yourself with me, you're just going to be filled with them again. We want to think that we're in charge of our lives. We are not. We are either following Christ. We are, we are either living by, by God's design for our lives or we are allowing someone else to drive us. That's the plain truth that's, that we're being reminded of here. Jesus is warning his hearers that without letting him have his rightful dominion in their lives, they are setting themselves up by being, for being ruled by evil Again, nature abhors a vacuum. Something is always going to fill that space. Whenever something is removed, something else is going to take its place. If people don't allow Jesus to reign in their lives, they will be reigned by something else. So what can a person do instead of ignoring the signs of Jesus' authority? How does a person avoid being and the enemy's resting place, the answer is that they must rest in the authority of the adopting king. We read, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and, my, and who are my brothers? 
Yeah. Now let's let's not get hung up on is Jesus disrespecting his mother and his brothers here. What is Jesus about to tell us? What is the positive that Jesus is trying to communicate here? Those who believe in the gospel are adopted by God the Father and brought into his family. That's what we're going to see here. We need to focus on the positive of what's being stated. Jesus is about to make the point about someone escaping this evil generation. That they have the opportunity to join God's family. It, it says he stretched out his hand toward his disciples. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Forever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus honors his fathers by proclaiming them to be his family. What is the will of the, God, of the heavenly father? Those who do the will of my father. The most recent command that Matthew associates with Jesus is again what we see at the end of chapter 11. Come to me all who are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden. In other words, all of those, all of you that are trying to fix yourself by religious activity, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those who are doing the will of the Father are those who are trusting Jesus as Savior. And thus they are entering into the rest that he offers. Now imagine a child adopted into a family that, uh, from the streets to the castle, from, from, from having no one to having the king as his father, the prince as his brother. That is what's being described here. For him to, to, to lay in a bed and say, this is my room. This is my bed. In order to be able to truly rest, he's got to truly believe. The king means what he says. My brother, the prince, means what he says when he says, you are my brother. You belong to us. We obey the will of the Father when we rest in the death and resurrection of Christ. And by so doing, we become brothers and sisters in Jesus' family. This is what Romans 8, 16 through 17 describes. Why it describes us as co-heirs with Christ. Where it says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So rest in Jesus and his work for you. In so doing, you can be confident in the signs that he has given of his authority. The first and foremost, the most important, is his resurrection from the dead. By his resurrection from the dead, he meant everything he said. He did everything that he could, claimed he could do. Know that there are evil spirits that are longing for a place to rest. A person to oppress. Let Christ take up residence in your life. Spreading his dominion in your heart. In your mind. In your behavior. 
And in knowing Christ, you can rest in the authority of the one that has adopted you. You've been made a brother and sister of Christ. That is amazing. And he wants you to stand on that. Let's bow our heads. Lord, your words here are, are both frightening and, and too wonderful for us. We, it's, it's no wonder that people have a hard time believing what you say. Lord, I, I rest in your adoption. I rest in the, in the way that you paved for me to be able to, to have God as my Father, you as my Savior. Lord, I, I, I pray for my friends here that they would understand that, that this is a, a real need that we must walk in every day. That as the lies come that, that, that say you didn't do what, what, you, what you claim to do or what your word claims you have done, that you didn't say, that you didn't mean that for me. That we would stand on your truth. That we would consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That we would gaze upon the beauty of your words, that we would claim them for ourselves. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the opportunity to lead others into a resting relationship with you. That they would not hang open and empty and able to be filled with, with all of the 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 things of this world that seem like treats but end up in torturous emptiness. That they would not be hollow but be filled. And I pray, Lord God, for the opportunity for us to simply share Jesus in what he is, in what he has done. He is the solution. And give us the words to say when we have the opportunity. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.